Chris McNamara is a big wall climber, former wingsuit bass jumper, and the author of over 10 books. This is Chris McNamara. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I'm here with Chris McNamara. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, you're an interesting fellow for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that I first heard about you um, is because you were one of the only ex-wingsuit bass jumper um, that I've heard of who's not also uh, dead. And so that seems like uh, a unique spot to be in. Uh, seems like you might have some interesting uh, thoughts about how you manage risk. Uh, and also, it sounds like you're someone who's willing to um, take a step back when things might be getting a little uh, out of hand and also having the capability to realize that. So a lot to talk about. Um, and of course you do much more than just not wingsuit base jumping. Um, but I, I am curious as just a starting point here, um, before we get into how you left base jumping, how did you get into this? I mean, it seems awfully dangerous. Um, yeah, the, how I got into it was pretty random. Um, I, the basically it was through the climbing world is how I was about to get into base jumping. Um, and then we, and we knew Frank Gambali, who was kind of like the godfather of American base jumping, or at least modern American base jumping, but then he died and then Dan Osmond died. Um, and so that kind of cut us off as climbers from getting into it. So I was pretty sure I'm never going to base jump. That was just fine with me. And then I just got like this random opportunity because I don't know if Frank Gambali taught Shane McConkie, but there's definitely a connection there. But Shane basically invented this idea of death camping, which is you don't need to skydive. Most common knowledge at the time was you should skydive like 150 times, which is probably what you should do. Um, but he determined that you only had to do it zero time. You only had to skydive zero times and you were ready to base jump with some, you know, brief and thoughtful instruction beforehand, of course. Um, and so not through Shane, but, um, someone else kind of had that death camping idea. I went up, jumped off at power tower in the middle of the central Valley in the middle of the night and really thought, um, that was fun to do once, but I would never get into it. But then like a year, I forget exactly a, a little bit after that, I saw Wait, these people. Um, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but you said you, you jumped off the tower in the middle of the night. Yeah. Cause it, it was illegal. So you had right. to do it in the middle of the night. Um, but isn't that but, something uh, that would, would make it if you're jumping off of a tower and you can't see the ground, isn't that a problem? Um, Having never skydived before. Like, um, <laughs> that's yeah. a pretty big leap. Yeah, yeah, yes and no. Um, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, when you jump at night, it's a lot less scary. Um, so that's helpful. Um, also, this place was super windy. And so that's normally bad. But in this case, um, all you had to do is turn the parachute 180 degrees and it made landing really easy. Whereas usually landing takes a while to figure out if you land 
right into a, a strong headwind, it makes landing like almost like you don't have to do anything. Hmm. So anyways, there's pros and cons to doing it at night, but, um, gotcha. uh, I, um, anyways, I saw these Norwegians flying their bodies off cliffs and, um, kind of pre wingsuit technology. And, uh, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And, uh, and that's why I got into it. It does look pretty cool. And like, I, did they have GoPro at, at this point? No, we, uh, GoPro had not been invented. This was like, I don't know, 2004. So, um, we felt like we were so cutting edge because we were taping small camcorders to our heads. Whereas, um, if you ever look at some of the original base jumping footage in the original, uh, you know, skydiving footage from the eighties, people have mounted like 20 pounds of equipment to, to their heads, yeah. which, um, on its surface looks crazy, but what's really crazy is when, uh, you know, the parachute opens, you go from traveling, you know, whatever, hundred miles an hour down to like 10 miles an hour really quickly. It's a very sudden deceleration and it puts a lot of force on your head. And if your head has 20 pounds levered on top of it, like, yeah, they all had to have had like linebacker uh, careers before this to have like, uh, yeah, I'm amazed. Yeah. Yeah. That, that the evolution of that, cause the GoPro is perfect for just like getting like your point of view. And it, I think it's probably, I would never do the wingsuit base jumping. Um, but the only reason I would is cause I've seen those GoPro videos of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so when you see these Norwegians throwing themselves off cliffs, they were probably using not, not just like rudimentary camera technology, if at all, but also the wingsuit itself had to have been like, it's much safer now from what I understand. Like back then, did, were, were there any, you, you know, scientists looking at this that you, you could trust? Well, um, ironically, it probably was safer at the beginning. Um, it's hard to tell exactly because it was a, such a small sample size. It's hard to like get yeah. data. It's actually hard to get data today. Um, but the wingsuits were so small that they were much lower performance and they then gave you less confidence to try to fly so close to things. Yeah. And so in some sense it was safer. Um, but obviously the, um, the, the, there were other things that we were figuring out that killed people like, um, you know, what type of pilot shoot you need and can the pilot shoot get stuck in an air bubble behind you and never open your parachute. So there was definitely like some people who died early on for things like that. But at the very beginning, we actually thought wingsuiting was going to be way safer. Um, and of course now it's totally flipped where most people who die base jumping die in wingsuits. Yeah. So you guys thought it would be safer. Why? Because at the time it seemed like, um, the main thing was to get away from the cliff. If you can get away from the cliff, then you're not going to hit it and die. Um, but of course what the wingsuit then let you do was, um, get away from the thing you jumped off, but now get really close to all the really exciting terrain below you. Yeah. And, um, for the most part, that's now what kills people. 
Although now another common thing that kills people is um, jumping off such short cliffs that they never get the wingsuit flying in time, Mm. Um, which back in the day, people were less excited to do that just because the suits weren't that good. And so you just didn't have the ability to even think about a lot of these short cliffs. Yeah. And, and it does kind of make sense that the wingsuit would be safer. Like people do, um, they do skydiving with wingsuits and I'm pretty sure like the number of fatalities of people jumping out of a plane with a wingsuit, I, I, I want to say it's zero. That sounds wrong, but I would heard that at some point it's, uh, it, it's, if you can get away from the cliff, is this a safe activity? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if you had like restraint, of course, most base jumpers don't, but if you had like restraint, you could make the sport pretty safe. Um, you would jump only off big cliffs. You'd fly away to safety as soon as possible. And then you'd open the parachute, you know, super high. Like, yeah, it would be pretty safe. Although then again, what would the point be? <laughs> because kind of all the fun stuff is uh, the opposite of what I just said. Yeah. Was that something, cause you've been like climbing for decades now. I, I mean, I, I think I saw some picture of you like with your brother or something like that when you were a teenager in, in Yosemite or something like crazy. I mean, w- was that something that drove you as like, especially as like a young guy, I think a lot of young guys, seek out like thrills and risks like the 18 to 35 crowd tends to um be the people doing a lot of the the wingsuit stuff um as far as like the high the adrenaline high goes how does wingsuit compare to say climbing um yeah it's two different things you know um wingsuiting is really much more like a sprint and then climbing would be like a marathon. And so climbing is this slow plodding activity that's really hard over a long period of time. And, you know, even the longest base jumps in the world, I think are like three minutes and most of them are under a minute. So the base jumping, it's just, it's really intense. It's really short. Most of your time is spent hiking. Yeah. <laughs> It's wingsuit base jumping should really be called like hiking with a short (laughs) hiking plus or something. It's really just the sport of hiking, just like skydiving is really the sport of sitting in dirty, small airports and then occasionally, and then occasionally sitting in really old, small planes. And then a very brief amount of time actually flying through the air. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm in Georgia right now and I went skydiving a couple of weeks ago and I was sitting there for like three and a half hours. And then it's like, you know, yep. a couple minutes in the air, you know, very, very, very much yeah. a game game. Um, but a much bigger payoff than a sport like fishing, which is also a waiting game. And, and yeah, you know, good point. So I'm, I'm curious, what, what draws you? Do you, have you, surely you've examined you know, when people approach you who do not jump off cliffs or climb them, uh, surely people are kind of baffled of, of why anyone would want to do this and risk their life. And surely you've spent time examining that part of your personality. So ha- have you 
uncovered any insight into why anyone would want to do these things? Like what, what draws you? Well, I mean, I think everyone has like flying dreams. And so um, I think most people can relate to the idea of flight as being pretty damn cool. I think most people also are like, that's so scary. I would never think about it. Um, but I think people are generally scared by the unknown. And so once you are in a running in a circle where a lot of people do things like this and it becomes like, Oh, that guy just did a, B and C. And that was the path. And, um, then it becomes less kind of crazy and out there. Um, so I think the, in some sense, the wingsuit makes more sense than the climbing, the climbing itself doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you're kind of choosing the hardest way to do something, <laughs> which usually in your daily life, you don't be like, you're not like, Oh, this would be, it'd be really easy to just like walk to the grocery store and get, get these things. Wait, but what if I could like, you know, I don't know, crab walk while on my back. Like, I don't know. It's like climbing is definitely harder to describe other than I think um, most people can relate to the idea that, um, doing something challenging and meaningful with people you like is kind of the recipe for, um, doing interesting things. Uh, pretty hard to skip any part of that equation and, and do meaningful stuff. Um, I think even, even most people who like dream about, I don't know, luxury, um, could also acknowledge like, oh yeah, that high you get from like a new car or whatever wears off pretty quick. Like ultimately it's doing thoughtful, meaningful, hard stuff with people you like that is, is the, the way to move forward. It, yeah. Although when I watched that uh, free solo, the, the Alex Honnold documentary um, and he's climbing El Cap with, without a rope or anything like that. And it is a hugely intense, uh, amazing accomplishment. Um, and I fucking bow before anyone who, who does that with or without a rope. Um, but there's also a part of me that's like, man, is this, I, I don't want to say it's like selfish, but like it, like there's no real output here as opposed to like someone who's like a, an artist in like their, their studio and they're sacrificing and then they share it with other people. It's like, maybe I guess the, the sharing, if you're climbing with other people, the, you're sharing the experience somehow. But do, do you see what I mean? Uh, I'm not trying to be critical, but like it, it, it does seem like uh, an, a very individualistic sport. A- am, I, am I wrong? Uh, which one? Uh, sorry. Um, Climbing in particular, um, oh, not that you're not doing without other people, but individualistic in the sense that it feels like a very, um, I don't know, it feels like a very personal pursuit and feels like it, it I'm not saying that it is, but it could come across as, um, you know, uh, selfish only to the extent of like, okay, you're climbing this mountain, but what actually has been accomplished? Like the mountain, like, do you see what I'm saying? I'm not, again. Uh, Yeah, but I I think I would use your example and like flip it because it it does seem like art where you could say like, well, what was the point of that painting? Um, And I feel like the point 
is like, that's kind of what's cool about being human is we don't have to do things that are only for survival. <laughs> you know, if you imagine we all just walk through life being like, it's just about spreading our genes and that's it. <laughs> like it would be a pretty exciting um, than oh, one of the cool things about being human is we're not just looking for food all day and trying to spread our genes. We're uh, being creative and thinking about what has no other human, uh, you know, what has never been done and, and how could I do something that's really intriguing both for myself and then to share. And of course, even though Alex did it alone, um, I think a lot of the meaning of it came because he chose to go through a very intense process of sharing that climb. I mean, you know, to be able to make yeah. that movie was uh, a very intense, long process that involved, you know, I don't know, probably over a hundred thousand hours of people's time. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, yeah. And, and I also think like, anything is how you approach it. You know, climbing can be super selfish. Um, I think the way I would think of it being selfish would be like, if I did things that were totally at my limit and likely to kill me, and then my kids didn't have a dad, like that would feel pretty selfish. But if you're like, actually, I want to go put up a whole bunch of climbs so that my kids and all the other kids in my community have a new outlet for being outdoors. And I think being outdoors is super important part of education and community. Then it suddenly flips to being like arguably one of the least selfish things. So it, okay. it, I think it's all in how you approach it. But I, I do think climbing, base jumping, all of this stuff sometimes is in the same category of art where you're like, at one, on one level, it's totally unnecessary. And at the other level, it's kind of the coolest part about being a human is being able to do these things. Totally. Yeah. And, and one of the, the interesting things in, in uh, that, that documentary that Alex even said is he mentioned a guy, Dean Potter, who was another free, free solo climber, uh, but who passed away doing the wingsuit stuff. And so yeah. if, if anything, to like put the, the level of risk of that activity in perspective, a guy who is climbing, you know, massive walls without a rope is like, oh, I would never do that. I mean, it, and I'd heard you say at some points that you thought a guy like Dean, uh, for example, was someone who had like cracked the code of how to do this safely. At yeah. what point did you realize like, okay, there's no way to do this safely? Um, for me, it was when Shane McConkie died and he died within three days of my last base jump, which was the first base jump into the, the first wingsuit base jump into the Grand Canyon. And um, I really thought Shane was um, this really thoughtful risk taker who um, had done, you know, spent decades doing really dangerous stuff in a whole bunch of sports. And um, I thought, oh, well, he did all this cutting edge stuff, skiing and sure. Yeah, he got injured a couple of times, but for the most part, um, you know, was mostly unscathed. So he's going to apply that to wingsuit and he's going to live forever wingsuiting and thoughtful people can just apply their thoughtfulness to any sport. And when he died, it really made me rethink where I was like, actually, I think wingsuiting is different 
than pretty much every sport, except for maybe like cutting edge 8,000 meter mountaineering. Um, that's the only other sport I can think of that people really thoughtful, calculated people just die all the time. Um, although it, in, in 8,000 meter peak stuff, it seems often more out of people's control. It's more like they put themselves in just an insanely dangerous environment. Whereas, uh, the wingsuit for most, for the most part, people who die, it's very much in their control. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's really unique in that sense. Hmm. Well, when you say in their control, you mean they could have done something differently and survived. Yeah. Like, um, the way I think of why everyone dies wingsuit base jumping, um, is that when you first start out, you very clearly leave this giant margin of error. Like let's say a hundred percent of your maximum effort would be right on the edge of killing yourself. So you're like, Oh, I'm going to dial it back to 80%. I'm going to leave this like 20% margin in everything I do, you know, whether it's flying a little, little far to get my wings flying on a, a 300 foot cliff, but I'm only going to jump off cliffs that are 500 feet or taller just to give myself that margin, you know? Yeah. And, um, and when you start out, you're going to be scared and you're going to keep that margin pretty religiously. But then what happens over time is um, I think people get comfortable and they start letting the margin compress, whether consciously or unconsciously. And suddenly they're doing something where they're like at 95%, you know, they're leaving that tiny little margin and um, you do that once you're fine. You do that a hundred or a thousand times. Now it's just a matter of one time it not quite working out. Right. Yeah. And I think that's pretty much what kills everyone is it's just that one time something didn't go quite right, which is happens all the time. They just, it, it didn't go quite right. And their margin was so small that it kills them. Yeah. And, um, and I think it, it just takes a certain human. I, I don't think I'm that human to be able to leave that type of margin um, all the time. Everyone can do it at first, but over time, almost everyone can't leave that type of margin. Yeah. Successfully. I mean, yeah. And that's, and that's what I, you know, Dean Potter, uh, wingsuit base jump for years and years and years. And was, I, you know, I, I don't think he had that many close calls. I think on that one night where he was with, uh, Graham, Graham was at the time, um, pushing the limits probably harder than anyone, at least in America. And I don't know if the two of them were just kind of pushing each other to like do some really cutting edge stuff. And they both, you know, did a jump that had, almost zero margin. And, uh, and then I don't know if anyone knows exactly what happened, but it's just likely that they found themselves in a situation where if they'd had a bigger margin, they probably would have gotten through it. Did they both die? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That is crazy. Dude, you're, you're in like a wild frame of life where your close friends can just die. Like that sucks. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it, it really, I mean, it sucks. Um, I'll be honest. It, it really sucks when your first couple friends die. It, you know, 
rips you apart. Um, but when like the fifth and the 10th friend die, you just kind of get numb, numb ish to it. Um, I imagine it, I got like, imagine you're 95 years old at that point, a lot of your friends will have died and it's probably not going to tear you to pieces because you're like, well, I'm 95 and I've lived a big life and a lot of my friends have died and I've been to a lot of funerals. So this isn't a big deal. And I feel like uh, base jumping just accelerates that into like your thirties where um, you're like a 95 year old. You've just seen a ton of people, you know, die and you just get kind of um, numb to it. Do you think that, I mean, one of the things you realize is that like your your world can sometimes be confused with the world and so all your you know you, you everybody you know has a friend who's died doing these kinds of activities then it's almost like oh well this is like relatively normal and so maybe then people are are more willing to pursue risk or or more willing to accept the idea that they could die in the process Um, I don't know. I think most people I've seen still convince themselves that they, uh, are different. (laughs) Yeah. Most people who base jump, they go, Oh, that guy died because he messed up. That guy died because he messed up. I'm not going to mess up. Um, that's the sense I get other than the, the friends I know, you know, some pretty high profile base jumper friends who also quit. Um, because they're just like honest with themselves and they just go like, Oh yeah, I know I'm really good, but lots of really good people die all the time. So yeah. I'm not that special. And, uh, there's just a lot of, you know, for me, I, I was in a unique spot where even though base jumping was the coolest thing ever, I also knew there's a lot of cool stuff to do in life. And I'd done it. I'd done the big wall climbing for a long time. And it was arguably even more meaningful to me. And so it was pretty easy for me to say, cause I'm not gonna be able to do this cool stuff on YouTube and um, I'll, I'll, I'll miss it. And I'll be like, Oh man, did I just give up something that was so cool? Um, but if I give enough time, something else really cool will fill it. And, and it did. And, uh, and I arguably way cooler stuff has filled it that void, but a lot of base jumpers, especially like, guys in their early twenties don't have that confidence that if they give it up, something else will fill that space. And so, um, I, I actually did this, I don't know if you saw it, but I did this like little PSA movie called on the fence. And basically it, it wasn't like, don't stop base jumping. That wasn't the message. The message was if it's not, if base jumping isn't giving you as much as it once did, which at some point is everyone feels that way. Yeah. You should know that if you do pause, you don't have to give it up. You can just pause. Uh, if you just pause other cool stuff, will fill it in. Don't worry. And, uh, and I do think there's a lot of people who worry, like I'll just never have the, the same identity. That'll be as cool as when I was a base jumper. And I, I know it's not as cool as when I first started, but I just can't give it up. And And that's, you know, I think it's sad when people die in general, but especially if it's, if it's no longer, you know, really meaningful to you. And if, if, so that would be my hope is that, um, not to get people to stop base jumping, but to give people the confidence that if they do give it up, if they were able to find something like that, then they will 
likely find something else if they are curious and open to it. Yeah, like, and, and I imagine there's a social aspect to it too, where it's like, you know, everywhere you go, you're like, oh yeah, you know, base jump and people are like, oh man, that's so cool. Tell me about it. And then it's way less cool to be like, yeah, I stopped base jumping. People are like, oh yeah, good. Stay safe. It's like, yeah. It, uh, yeah, that, that confidence to be like, okay, something cool is going to come along. Uh, this, this does not have to like validate me. Um, terrible reason to do a risky activity. Uh, I agree. Um, did you do a last run when you gave up the wingsuit? A lot. That, yeah, the jump into the Grand Canyon was the last one. Okay, yeah. That, how, how was that? Was that a weird way to see the Grand Canyon? Um, it was amazing, but to be honest, I really didn't want to do it. I was hoping someone else would do it first, and then um, – some friends who were, you know, filming were like, do you have any projects? And I was like, no, well, actually I figured out how to be the first to jump into the Grand Canyon. They're like, what? We have to film that. And, uh, and I was like, so was, I kind of got seduced by the Kodak courage. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll just do one last jump. Um, but for a lot of reasons, that jump almost killed me twice. And so by the time I, you know, finished the jump, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely quitting because A, I almost died twice and on one jump and B, um, this should have been the coolest thing ever, you know, like yeah. there, and it was just kind of like, eh, like that was, that was fine. It was cool. Oh, wow. And, and so I knew like the only reason to keep base jumping would be like, I'm just a straight drug addict who, yeah. you know, has such a narrow field of vision that this is the only way to live. And it's like, I, I know that's not true. I just have to now trust that and go leave the space to be filled by some other stuff. Yeah. Well, that's uh, first off, how did you almost die twice? Uh, I mean, the short version is, I almost hit the cliff and then I almost drown in the river <laughs> longer version, you know, takes a while, but, um, it, it has to do with, you know, that, that margin and, and, um, not leaving a big enough margin while encountering new conditions. In this case, the new condition was I'd never base jumped when I was that tired. And I really thought, um, because the thing about the Grand Canyon, the hard part isn't the jump, it's getting back out. <laughs> and because um, unless you jump where there's an established trail, just getting there, you know, the Grand Canyon is 280 miles long and there's not that many places to just walk out, you know? Yeah. And so um, I was so tired from the day before figuring out how to walk out. And I just decided, and, and we had to jump because there was a sandstorm coming like in the, in the weather. And so um, we had to jump and I was just like, well, this jump's going to last 30 seconds. I can pull it together for 30 seconds. Like, come on, it's not that hard. But what I didn't realize is when you're really tired, it's a lot like being drunk. Um, the first thing to go is your balance and wingsuit base jumping is all about balance. It's not about strength. It's about body position and, uh, and, and so anyways, I, when, when I did the base jump, my balance 
and my body position was so horrible that I was flying pretty much worse than I ever had in my life. And that, you know, you know, I was had to process that as suddenly I was falling like a rock more than flying. Yeah. I almost hit the cliff. And then that put me in a spot where I had to decide between landing in a boulder field and maybe spraining my ankle and not being able to walk out. Or I was like, Oh, if I just land in the water, that'll all work out. And I didn't realize, um, if you land in the water with a parachute, you're basically like 98% likely to drown if there's any current. And, And I just got really lucky where there was almost no current where I landed and I was barely able to get myself out without drowning. Just just because the parachute acts as like scoops up all the water dragging you down. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think a parachute is basically like a, uh, like, you know, those anchors that boats use in, um, when they're doing like around the world stuff where you're, where you're you're not really anchored, but you're like, I want to like stay as much in one place and not go off course. Right. Like that's basically what a parachute is, <laughs> is, is an anchor. It basically sucks, sucks you down as soon as it fills with water. Yeah. Yeah. Rough. Okay. So at the end of this, you decide, all right, this is not, I, I mean, that's pretty rough to wingsuit into the grand Canyon and then just be like, eh, like, this is not, this is not that cool. <laughs> like yeah. most people, that would be like a highlight of their life. And for you, it was like, this is, this just is not a spark anymore. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, the, the real appeal is, uh, you know, being creative and, you know, being creative is thinking about the unknown. And, um, at that point I really felt like I could visualize exactly what would happen if everything went right. Um, so it was pretty known what would go, what would happen if everything went right. <laughs> the only thing I didn't know was what are all the ways this could go wrong. <laughs> and of course, uh, you don't want to put yourself in that situation where the best that can happen is you're like, oh yeah, that was kind of what I thought it would be. And the worst is you die. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't want to be engaged in those activities. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I forget what the name is in gambling, but it's basically like a, a kind of bet where there's no positive upside for you. Like if you bet someone, Hey, I bet a thousand dollars that you can't, you know, bench press 500 pounds. And if, if they do it, you lose money. If they don't do it, you don't win anything like yeah, ter- terrible bet. Um, wh- what about base jumping in general though? Because there have been some people who have suggested that the mortality statistics for base jumping should, should be made distinct from people who do wingsuit base jumping. Like, okay, wingsuit stuff is in a category of its own. W- would, you, would you ever just base jump again? No, the whole point was the wingsuit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, without, without a wingsuit, it's a sport of falling, you know, with a wingsuit, it's the sport of flying. So. Yeah. But dude, I've seen some pretty sick base jumps before that. uh, I don't know. I would happily fall in that manner. (laughs) Like. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's all personal preference, but um, my personal preference was, the whole reason to be in this sport is that like, you know, that Icarus like dream that people have had for a uh, hundred thousand years, which um, is the feeling of flight. And, um, and, and yeah, for me, that's, that was the only reason to do the sport. Any, any time I did, 
I mean, I, that said, I went to KL Tower and, you know, every year you can jump off that as many times as possible in like 72 hours. And um, it's in Malaysia. It's that giant like space needle thing. Um, so I, uh, th- that was pretty cool. Um, I'm sure going to, you know, now there's mega skyscrapers like Burj Khalifa or, um, that are, you know, almost 3000 feet. Like that would be pretty cool. Yeah. But, uh, the idea of, you know, jumping off something that's so short that it's the thrill is you almost think you're going to hit the ground and then you don't like, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I think would be cool. Fair. I don't know, man. I've seen some, uh, some great YouTubers who like break into construction sites and then they jump off of them and it, it just looks unreal. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the way the sport started because, you know, before wingsuits, it was really all about, um, I mean, there weren't that many cliffs really that were, um, base jumping cliffs. And so it was all about buildings and the whole kind of, uh, mission impossible nature of getting in and yeah. being undetected. And, um, yeah, I just, for, for anyone who's like into that, then yes, the sport is amazing and you should consider it <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but I was just never into that. I I've, I have a, like a really horrible track record of doing things illegally. So I'm just like, Oh, like I do the most minor crap and I get caught. And so yeah. I just try to just stay above board. You, you never put on the safety vest and construction hat and walked onto a side. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we jumped off like, you know, power towers in the middle of the night, but, um, but never did the like trespassing on buildings thing. The power tower is freaky because I'd be worried about getting like some kind of electric shock or radiation. I mean, you know, yeah, you, you definitely feel the electricity. Like, you know, it's the type of thing where if you like, just put your hand next to the railing, it definitely like, well, the whole thing is humming really loud. So that's a little unnerving. Um, but yeah, then you just put your hand next to it and you can definitely feel the electricity. (laughs) It's, uh, you, you, yeah, you, you wouldn't want to be hanging out there up there any longer than you have to. Have you have you done any like crazy climbs just around the world? I mean, I, I remember seeing like the uh, like Alex Honnold doing climbs in Antarctica. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. Like it, it, have you gone like anywhere like the Middle East or uh, you, you mentioned Malaysia. I don't know if you've actually if you've been, but there are some um, wicked places to do these things. The base jumping? Um, how, how about all of the above? Because I'm, I'm mostly, I'm sure you have some stories, but if, if there's one from climbing. Yeah, I mean, the base jumping, um, for sure, that's one of the coolest things about it is every natural thing to base jump off is in a pretty stunning, awesome, amazing location. So um, yeah, went to Baffin Island, which is about as cool as it gets, in my opinion. Um, you know, 4,000 foot, uh, vertical cliffs coming out of a frozen ocean like pretty badass hanging with the polar bears where, and, where is this uh baffin island is the northeast part of canada above the arctic circle oh, and wow. it's um inuit territory so it's um even though it's technically canada it's you know managed by the native people the inuit right. um so that place is amazing um just going everywhere in the alps 
base jumping was really cool. Um, you should probably go everywhere in the Alps without needing to base jump, but base jumping was a, a great excuse to see a lot of the most, um, you know, cool peaks around the Alps and a lot of like really out of the beaten path stuff, um, that, you know, doesn't make it onto tourist lists, but has some like really cool cliff. Um, yeah, I mean, Europe is just designed for base jumping, uh, because it's all limestone, which is a much better rock to form, uh, steep starts, which in a base jumping is really all you need. You just need a steep 500 ish foot cliff, or if you're a badass, a 200 foot cliff, but something in that range, the Alps has, whereas, uh, the U S is really all about granite and sandstone. We don't really have much limestone. And so everything that we have, that's really tall and cool with the exception of Yosemite is usually in Zion, um, is usually not great to base jump. Now what's changed in the U S is the wingsuits have gotten so good hundred foot cliffs in the U S that people will now jump off of, but, um, they're super heads up and yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting that the quality of the rock itself plays a role in whether or not it, it would be desirable to base jump off of. Like it, what is it about like the way that your feet stick on the, the surface or like, no, no, it's, it's actual... just, oh, okay. it's just the start I to get the wingsuit flying takes somewhere between, you know, 200 and 500 feet, depending on how good you are. And so, um, and now it could actually might even be shorter than 200 feet. I don't know. It's, it's been pretty amazing how, how much people have progressed and how much people have like, you know, raised the stakes, but, um, that's, that's the limiting factor is getting the wingsuit flying. Once the wingsuit's flying, you know, with a four to one glide ratio, you can kind of fly anywhere that's slightly hilly. Um, I'm not great at math, but four to one, whatever that percent slope is, it, it's not, it doesn't need to be dramatically steep to be able to, to have a long wingsuit flight. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, uh, okay. So I'm curious. I, I don't think I would ever do the wingsuit base jumping just because it seems, unless it was out of a plane, w would you do it out of a plane? No, because um, you know, again, everyone's got their own thing that makes them happy, but out of a plane kind of takes away the whole point in my mind, because the whole point is to be yeah. relative to something. That's what tells you if you're moving fast or not. Once you jump out of a plane, because there's nothing around you, it's really hard to tell that you're not just falling more slowly. Um, yeah. You know, that said, if you're like flying in a formation, that's kind of cool. And, and that does help you. That is something relative you to is another person, but, um, it's nothing like, you know, jumping off a cliff, seeing a ledge come up at you that you then fly away from, and then you turn into the cliff and you're flying right next to it. And then you look down and you drop into a gully and then you, you know, fly over a waterfall. And, uh, you know, that's really the whole point is to, um, right. have that you know, create that, that line, you know, the same way that a skier would look at something is if someone just grooms like a giant flat, uh, path down a mountain, 
most people don't get that excited. <laughs> Whereas if there's, you know, a whole bunch of interesting terrain and, and uh, then you're like, Oh, now, now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that precisely the things that make wingsuit like dangerous are, are also would make it so fun. Um, or the idea yeah. seems so fun. Um, okay. So in terms of jumping off buildings, and this is for me, because I've, I've done skydiving. Um, I, I, I am inspired uh, by these, these YouTube kids who just go into a construction site and jump off. Looks insane. Is that super dangerous? No. Um, I mean, obviously, it all depends on um, how you're doing things, but if you're really thoughtful and calculated, um, it's very likely the parachute is going to open. And as soon as the parachute is open, it's a lot harder to die. You know, the reason why people die wingsuiting is because they're almost always hitting the ground with no parachute open. Um, so when you jump off a building, very likely your parachute's going to open. Then what would kill you would be, um, having the parachute open 180 and fly you right back into something and either hit the thing so hard that it kills you or have the parachute collapse. And then you hit something down below you at a higher speed than you can survive. So, um, anyways, that's, that's why jumping off buildings is usually safer. Um, you know, that being said, almost all buildings are pretty short in the grand scheme of things. And so you're almost always opening your parachute real close to the thing you just jumped off of. And that makes it likely that even though you have an open parachute, that if something goes wrong, you can hit something. And so that's where the, the, the danger and the risk is, is, is understanding, uh, you know, once the parachutes open, what are, what's your margin of error for, Oh, no, my parachute opened 90 or it opened 120. Um, and of course, how do I keep out of jail? Because um, the, the, the variety of um, trouble you get into varies very widely in those types of environments. Sometimes it's a total slap on the wrist and sometimes it's like many thousands of dollars and maybe a little bit of jail, jail time. When people say like, one thing that I've heard is like a pet peeve among skydivers is when a fatality is reported in the paper and they say, oh, the person's parachute failed to open. And it's like, well, okay, that's not nearly enough info. Um, does that happen if, if somebody packs their parachute like perfectly, it, it appears to be in good condition? Can, can someone pull the cord and it just doesn't open? Uh, skydiving? Uh well, yeah, skydiving, um, any, anytime you jump off something with a parachute, I guess that would include base jumping as well. Uh, I mean, skydiving, it's pretty hard to not have a parachute open. Um, because you have a, you got two of them. B most people have a, a Cypress device, which basically will, even if you pass out, it'll still open your parachute. If you pass below a certain altitude at a certain speed, um, so most skydiving, um, things happen with like a partially opened parachute. 
um, where you get line twists or, 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 or something like that. Um, base jumping, it's, there's, there's most people also, if they try to open their parachute, it usually opens. Um, there was a brief moment where with the wingsuits, um, people were throwing their pilot chute into their air burble. And, um, there were some people who never had their parachute open for that reason. Um, so basically you throw the pilot chute and it just gets kind of stuck without ever fully extending and then pulling out the, um, the main parachute, but that almost never happens now. And actually, if you watch people, people are very conscious of this when you watch them, um, open a pair or throw a, a pilot chute. Now it's very deliberate. Yeah. <laughs> like people learned, like, you don't just like gently pull it. You like grab it, you make sure you have it and you throw it. Mm. And, um, and with that in mind, like pretty much if someone wants to open their parachute, it almost always opens. Um, it's really more a question in the base jumping world of miscalculating outflying terrain. And, um, and once you miscalculate really often your only chance is to try to outfly the terrain. Cause you know, as soon as you're under like a hundred feet to the ground, there's very, it's very unlikely the parachute would ever open in time. Damn. Yeah. That would be, uh, that'd be a rough way to go. Um, I'm curious. So we're, we're almost at an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, but before we go, I wanted to ask, because you're someone who does not work in like a traditional job, um, this is not like being a doctor or a teacher where you can go to school and get a diploma and apply and sort of live your life. Um, you're clearly committed to this lifestyle. Um, you, you, you know, you can feed yourself. You're not uh, like a, a vagrant um, <laughs> in any sense of the word. And I'm curious, there have to be uh, pros and cons to, to this lifestyle. And if you were talking to a 20-year-old, what would be some of the fears uh, or like negatives uh, about this way of life, if you will, uh, that are real? And which, which of the fears are just like imaginary? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, if you're 20, you should just go do whatever is fun that won't kill you. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's more when you get 30 that you have to start thinking like, okay, I should probably make sure that the, uh, you know, the law of compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world, I get that started sooner than later so that I don't end up when I'm 40 or 50 trying to start this on my side. Um, so just pretty like normal desk work because making guidebooks, making gear reviews, all this stuff. Um, hate to give away the secret, but it's a whole lot of time staring at a computer. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's actually never been a better time to kind of do both. Um, I think usually there's never a choice between, um, being able to get outside and do creative physical things every day. And also, thinking about kind of bigger, longer term goals. Um, there's 
definitely been never more embracing of like van life, working remote, all of that. Um, so yeah, my advice would just be to do it all. Totally. There we go. Uh, Chris, before we go, uh, is there anywhere people can find you or any, uh, any books that you, you have coming out soon that people should check out? Um, I mean, I guess chrismacnamara.com, um, um, is a good spot. No books coming out right now. Everything I'm working on now are these giant trails. Um, one around Tahoe, one the length of the Sierra and one from uh, Cabo to Canada. And they're all pretty long-term projects. But if you want to mark in your calendar for, for like three years from now, um, those books will be coming out. Uh, Cabo to Canada. You'll probably hear from me more than you want to about them. No, no, that sounds awesome. I, are you, are you doing like a guide of the trails? Uh, well, if I do my job right, I'll find someone else to write the guide. But as of now, I'm like create, I'm collecting all the information to, to hopefully hand to someone else to make the guide. Okay. But I could also not uh, successfully delegate that. And I would have to, to write the guide, which, which, you know, it would be fun too. It's just writing books takes forever. <laughs> do you, Cabo to Canada, is that like a pre-existing trail or is this uh, like, and maybe you don't want to give it away, but I, I'm curious now. I, it, I know people um, it's, know it's both. Um, I mean, the secret of these big trails is if you do the inventory of what's on the ground, there's usually 90 to 98% there already. It's really, at least for like a version 1.0. Um, so it's really the, the main exercise is just in surveying what's there. And uh, in every major trail project I've been associated with, we've always been shocked how much was already there to the point where it's like, you could almost argue the trail is there, but um, usually what happens is you go, I don't really want to launch that as the first version. I want to like fill in some key gaps that will really make this thing awesome. And so um, that's what we're doing now is all these trails are arguably 90 or 95% done, at least on the first version. But we're just trying to like fill in like some really key things. And then it's a 30 year plus process. It's, it's, I guess, in theory, an infinite process of um, improving it, gradually improving it, reiterating. Um, again, every long trail also has follows that process. You know, these things are dynamic. They can always be made more interesting and better. That sounds sweet, man. I mean, I know people do like the Pacific coast, like uh, trail, but uh, doing Cabo to Canada sounds like a, an excellent alternative. So looking forward to that. Uh, Chris, thanks once again for taking the time to talk. And My pleasure. This was fun. Sweet. Glad you liked it. Um, cool. Thank you to Chris McNamara and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.